0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam
1: Powatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Aaron Cameron, with my co-host, Adam Powatic. This is episode 15, and of course, sponsored by First National Financial. Uh, our guest today is Matthew Popow from the CoStar Group. He's a senior account executive. Thanks for joining us, Matt.
0: Thanks very much for having me on, guys.
1: So I mean, let's jump right into it, Matt. What um, you know? Let's start with how did you get into commercial real estate in the first place?
0: Yeah, good question. Um, I'm a grad from University of Windsor. I took uh, political science and economics. Um, interesting conversation I had with one of my professors there was uh, about the supply and demand of of land and real estate. Um, and he his, he sort of said, um, you know. Um, Every single day, there's more and more people on the planet, and God's not building any more land. So we've got to be smarter in how we use it. So that intrigued me, Uh, but my father was also in commercial real estate um, growing up.
2: So uh, I guess uh, part of the seed was the seed was was planted early. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually from this from a similar background. I grew up in a household of uh, developers, and I've got a, a project from grade five about what you're gonna do when you're older and it says work in commercial real estate <laughs> not because I had such a foresight where I'd end up but more just you know do what your dad does it's, right uh, yeah but real estate in particular seems to attract that kind of uh, succession where the kids end up in it too you see it all over the place in the industry yeah absolutely
1: it's not surprising right everyone wants to grow up to be their father at some point or another right yeah that's right So let's talk about co-star first and foremost um, you know, why don't you talk about what CoStar is? I mean, there's probably a lot of listeners out there that aren't unfamiliar with with the group and what what they what they provide and what services they've got.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Um, and and uh, thanks for asking about that. We've uh, so CoStar Group is uh, founded by Andy Florence uh, 30 years ago uh, out of Washington D.C. Um, we're the world's largest, uh, commercial real estate research group. Um, so, uh, of our 3000 plus employees, about half of them are, are, uh, in-house researchers. So if, uh, effectively what you wind up with is, is, um, market data on listings, sales comps, things of that nature, um, that are aggregated together on a, on a, a usable, uh, SAS platform. Um, so we're the market leader in, in that. I, uh, have been with CoStar in Canada now for two years and three months Um, and you know a large portion of that is actually myth busting so what what does CoStar do Uh, CoStar group is um, a conglomerate of companies that uh, comprise of some of the larger ones are apartments.com in the U.S. and LoopNet which is uh, something that a lot of people in Canada are Hmm. familiar with which is a commercial uh, ILS platform for marketing properties
1: available for sale and for lease.
2: So it's ILS
0: uh, internet listing site or internet okay. listing service? Yeah, That's,
1: I mean it's one of those sort of non non well known. Sources. I had no idea that it was owned by CoStar. And let's just maybe let's back up a little bit. I mean, you, you not not to bring up competitors, but more just for, for information purposes, for those that are in the industry, there's, there's always a thirst for knowledge and a thirst for comparables and looking for information about what's going on in the industry, in particular neighborhoods and jurisdictions, and whether you're on the, the lending side like like Adam and I or uh, on the asset management side or on the leasing side, kind of no matter where you are in real estate, you kind of always have to get a sense of you know what's the rent for this sort of node or what's the average price per square foot for this type of asset class and there's always you know it's always changing and that's kind of what the fun part about real estate is it's it's never the same depending on where it's located nor the same depending on the time you're, you're looking at whatever the particular transaction or investment is um, and so with that there's always this need for the commercial real estate market participants to collect data and support the the assumptions that they've made. Um, and so CoStar came to Canada, how many years ago now is it?
0: Um, yeah, so we started researching the market uh, from DC with a dedicated research group in 2010. And it, it took us uh, four years, we had boots on the ground. So the field researchers, they were actually uh, professional uh, photographers. So what they would do is drive one kilometer square grids and, and uh, catalog each commercial property and, you know, begin to build a database, uh, geo pin every single building. And then once you had them uploaded, then you had an internal research team in D.C. that was able to start calling on, you know, property owners. And and as you mentioned, the commercial players that are involved with the properties, you know, so that took us about uh, four years to wow. to you know, aggregate data and then turn around and say, okay, we've got something valuable here that that's a database that we can monetize on. So um, our sales group sort of turned the lights on. And in, is that, that just in the February. GTA at the time? It was just GTA at the time. Yep. Yeah. Um, we can talk about sort of national growth. Uh, but yeah, we were focused on the GTA proper and and that's actually kind of grown uh, into the golden horseshoe.
1: And 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 I guess, was that always the purpose of CoStar? I mean, you know, so there's a number of conglomerates, but it sounds like it's always sort of been a research market data firm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a you know research company at its core and and um you know, we're we're calling to uh, you know verify and listing information and and keep the most up to date you know sort of accurate database that's available to end users. In the so in, in
1: 1987, it was paper publications. I'm guessing not. not yeah, not yeah. Online. Actually, I
0: uh, you know it's radio. I, I've got a video um, that's interesting. You can find it on YouTube. But uh, it's sort of the progression of of uh, CoStar. I mean, it didn't 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 start off as a, a you know an SAS platform. It was. Um, you know, booklets that turned into CD-ROM that uh, eventually, you know, the, the world sort of caught up then you know,
2: internet access and things sure. like that. Sure, yeah. So, yeah it's right
1: place, right time, so to speak. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. It's an
2: interesting uh, interesting progression. And for those that don't know CoStar, in the States, uh, you guys are present in virtually every market and just a dominant force when it comes to the data research.
0: There are, you know, we certainly have competitors in the States. Um, I, I've heard a lot of people say that we're sort of the de facto you know, we're, we're in every major market in the U.S. Um, we have uh, data in the U.K. as well, too, uh, you know, complete coverage and, you know, growing in Europe and uh, right across Canada as well, too. So we started in the GTA uh, in Toronto and now have uh, market data in uh, Toronto, Ottawa, Edmonton, Calgary and Vancouver. Um, we're, we're growing our database in Montreal as well, too. So that's sort of online and, uh, you know, coming down the pipeline. Um, And then, you know, the goal is to have national coverage in major markets. And then that sort of those it's called almost like a land and expand. Um, You know, you sort of hit the major markets and
2: then you you grow uh, from there. What's the, the smallest Canadian market you could envision CoStar going into and spending the time and energy and resources to track it? That's an interesting question. I feel that the answer
0: ultimately is every commercial property uh, in Canada. Well, work
1: backwards. I mean, in the U.S., you say every major market define, you know, maybe based on population, what that means.
0: You know, the, some of the smallest markets uh, I, I, they don't even come to mind. But I mean, you know, you start in New York, you start in L.A. and and, and Washington D.C. are some of our more uh, mature markets. And that grows right into the secondary and tertiary markets. Yeah, buckets. so maybe
1: Barry, Barry, Ontario, might be sort of the the, the, the bottom of the, the the totem pole, so to speak. I
0: wouldn't. I wouldn't. wouldn't uh, no, I wouldn't say that because we already have complete coverage in Barrie. Oh, okay, bad bad um, example. So Red, ma- well, Let's go. Here? Let's go back. Red Deer. While well, we yeah. were t- we were talking about Cottage Country earlier, so Tweed, Ontario, might be sort of one of the. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I've I've got a cottage there, so it's a nice little town with uh, with retail and some commercial, but well, I mean, yeah. We we'll be there. It has one of each, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> exactly. No, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll be in those markets because the ultimately the and and it's it's not really a, a secret. The 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 key to the whole thing is that because we have the largest sort of subscription based followers that use the end users of the data, it sort of behooves property owners that when they have a, a listing, um, CoStar will market that in in our database mm-hmm. for free to again the largest. Um, and user base of commercial real estate players. So, you know, if I've got a listing, it doesn't matter where I am. I want to share that with CoStar.
1: So can we talk about the the strategy? You mentioned land and expand and and you didn't kind of come in with full market data in the GTA. I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, But you kind of focused on the leasing side of it at first. Mm-hmm. And and how does that expand and what's the strategy going forwards? uh well i mean it, it it's uh
0: you know building rapport with uh with property owners with leasing agents with uh with lenders uh, such as yourselves and um at that point you know it's it's kind of uh, you know to a certain extent sometimes it's dispelling myths i mean we're not gathering data here to to then you know turn on to become a brokerage um we're a research group we have been for 30 years and and uh you know our our largest client base is, is brokerage so we aim to serve them to get them as much data as they need that's, um, proactively researched so that they can, you know, their research groups can sort of, we want to be essentially the ones in the trenches gathering, uh, you know, the, the minute details of, of changes in the market. The research groups at brokerage houses can then turn around and say, okay, well, you know, if this has been proactively researched, now what we can do is spend time on actual analytics, uh, maybe even consulting work. So it, it's complementary. Um, it's not uh, something that's going to replace uh, an in house research. And group. You, so,
1: you must, I mean, that that concept of dispelling myths, I mean, you must You must come across, come against sort you of know, roadblocks all the time. I can imagine if I'm a property owner and I get a call from a researcher for CoStar saying, hey, what's the per square foot rent of that unit? You know, it's, right. uh, what, what, how do you guys go over that and what kind of, what kind of a, what kind of approach or a, I, attack plan? Do you have to to get around that? I,
0: I can tell you a, a story because my first interaction with CoStar, being a, a former Canadian broker um, in 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 the GTA, was uh, getting a call from DC, um, and uh, it was on a property that I had a had a listing on, and he was calling to say, "Hey, listen, we're we're a large database uh, in the U.S., and it doesn't cost you anything to market with us." And I said, you know, it was probably maybe the second or third call that he had, uh, he had called into me. Um, And at first, you know, star calling, it's like the Coast Guard. Why are they (laughs) calling me? What what is this? (laughs) So, um, you know, I I was, uh, I was, you know, sort of naive to, uh, to star and what they did. And I think primarily that, that really stems from um, in Canada, you know, you you look at sort of the, the, um, the growth of the industry and, and how uh, brokerages have, have really done well. And that's, you know, building things in house. Uh, they, they, they never had a de facto, uh, source or, um, of, of commercial real estate that was holistic in the way that they, uh, did research, you know, so they had, uh, subscriptions that they utilized again, complementary to their own in-house research group. Um, and they, you know, they had to build it for themselves and for the, for the longest time, um, still to this day, that's one of their biggest differentiators so, uh, is saying, you know, Hey, we've got the largest research group. We have access to the most amount of data, which ultimately makes it so that we're, you know, we can, we can advise you on market trends and things of that nature. So, um, you know, we're certainly not looking to, uh, you know, disrupt that. I think what we're trying to do is get more data Mm -hmm. to these, uh, research groups. And ultimately that benefits the broker, uh, in a number of different ways. So, Perhaps business development, or or turning around and and saying I can, uh, I can get a, a number of listings off to a client that's a potential buyer. Maybe I can do that quicker. Um, so we're just looking to really compress the deal cycle, and ultimately that's uh, beneficial for the the clients of the brokerages as well too. Um, people that are uh, you know we t- sort of take this back into you guys' sphere. Um, uh, You know, on the lending side, uh, you know, it helps loan originators to understand, you know, who's buying and selling in the markets. It, it helps the underwriting groups to understand. Again, if you have more data, um, maybe you see something in the market uh, that affects the way you yeah, guys lend. And
1: Certainly, I mean, for us, it's knowing, are the rents reasonable? Is the cash flow sustainable? You know, right. Is it durable? Does it make sense in the location that it is or the asset class? And having access to, to CoStar certainly helps that. And you guys are now also collecting data debt uh, information as well.
2: Yeah, and not collecting debt, but collecting debt, debt information. <laughs> <laughs> yes. sorry, let me clarify there. You are. <laughs> right. You're a computer uh,
1: lender now? Yeah.
0: yeah, that's, no, no, we're not a lender. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, and, and um, uh, you know, I think it's helpful for for someone in the lending sphere to, again, understand, you know, who, who's buying and selling and, um, you know, what, Uh, changes that happen in the market fundamentals, you know, uh, you look at like highest and best use of property uh, these days, people are really doing their due diligence on, on uh, understanding value um, because, um, you know, I would say that as things get denser, there's, there's maybe less deals to do. um, And ultimately you've got to be creative when you uh, find an opportunity and, and uh, you know, with more data, maybe you can turn around a decision quicker. Maybe you can be more accurate with your decisions um
2: that's uh that's the yeah, speed in this marketplace is really important yeah it's so competitive are you guys finding that as well too yeah
0: yeah
1: it's so yeah. It's such a liquid market i mean just specific, specifically to the debt market it's it's so liquid there's so much money out there and i think that's you know it was of, uh, real estate is an alternative asset class that i think is becoming more and more appealing for you know for just its durability and its strength and it, the sort of the, you know historic growth that it's seen and mm-hmm. um yeah, it's all, so being, being the first one to respond, being the first one to issue, you know, a letter of intent or whatever it may be certainly helps. And so having access to research like yourselves, um, you know, just makes it that much quicker.
2: And for developers, you know, putting together performance, having access to information, getting that done quicker, trying to go in firm on offers for land because they're, they're uh, confident in the numbers they're using, it makes all the difference. I mean, the greatest example that we see is on the appraisal side in markets that are very, very small. And you're talking about you know that's a, that's an absence of data essentially mm-hmm. and so you get an appraisal and they're using comps from 300 kilometers away and you read it and you go i can't rely on any of this but just right. the absence of the data of yeah. course now you know major markets were being tracked you're you're very confident in your numbers
0: right yeah and i mean that the you know it's difficult too because i remember working on a project with uh, uh with someone in the industry and they said well you know there's just there's not a lot of comps and you know, you wish you could kind of create them, but you, you do have to look at alternative ways of coming up with value, right? So maybe understanding the, whether it be the leasing demand, um, or the the leasing velocity in the marketplace. And if there are no sales comps to really support that, you know, what do you get into? Do you get into, uh, the cost of, to rebuild it? Um, and then potential NOI or the current vacancy. I mean, there's a number of factors that I guess you have to look at if you don't have
2: those, uh,
0: traditional comps
2: to value something it's funny when i talked to i mentioned at the start my dad was a developer and talked to him about retail and his sound advice from buying properties 40 years ago was always buy on the sunny side of the street it's got the most pedestrians you know that's (laughs) the kind of the thought process and now it's you know you've got 50 page documents just full of graphs and charts that demonstrate why you should buy that property yeah that's
0: right
1: yeah, I wonder if it's I mean, back then, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I'll just hypothesize that, you know, when you're buying things at 10 caps or nine caps, you probably had this sense that, you know, yes, there could be some stagnation, but likely values are going to go up. And I think there's a bit of a concern in the market. And we'll probably talk about this a little bit later in the podcast about, you know, just what's going on in the Canadian marketplace. But, you know, when you're buying things at a three cap, I, I can't envision two caps or one caps. I mean, I, I know that I hear that they're out there, but they're certainly not nearly in the same kind of growth. So from a lender's perspective, if I'm being asked to lend at 75% of value, uh, I got to be pretty confident that it's going to retain its value, let alone appreciate over that five-year term or whatever the whatever the duration is. So the more information I have, the better I can verify that right. the information and the valuation, the, the cash flow is true and sustainable. That's just better for us. Um, why don't you talk about you know what happens if um, there's Data missing in a in a particular comp and and the and the, the support you, you give to your subscription or yeah. your sub- subscribers.
0: Yeah, that a uh, great question. You know that and that that really goes back to sort of the former years of my career is uh, is that um, you know brokers will always have a, a ton of value because you know a lot of folks have been in in, in neighborhoods and parts of the city for a very long time, a very intimate knowledge of uh, of you know market rates data players in the market um and and you know so you know there's always going to be those relationships in a market that uh that people will have to rely on when there's a lack of data um we're 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 you know we're simply not in the business of making anything up we're we're calling and in verifying information and you know there's uh, there's value um there's value to to having what's available in the marketplace, and then whether that be verifying it or, or or maybe it starts a conversation with a broker in the market.
1: Maybe I'm sorry if you don't have the answer to this question, but what's the hardest type of information to collect about a particular asset class that you think you might be get asked for the most that you have a really hard time actually collecting this, and, this and is aggregating? A,
0: this is a that's a great question, and it's a really easy answer it's all of the, it's, it's the most valuable piece of information really. And it's, it's like uh net effective rental rates. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the industry, it's an NER and um, you know, for a number of reasons, that's just not shared with us. Um, you know, the, the tenant, the landlord and the, uh, the, um, the agents and the brokers that work, I mean, they're, they're bound by confidentiality and ultimately that's their that is their their sort of uh, combative knowledge. That's the market rate that that everybody is after, and and um, you know however that makes up a lease deal, whether you know it's net rent and and uh, tenant inducement allowance or whatever the case may be. Is so that's the covenanted number. So, that so I have a solution for you What's for it? for CoStar
1: yeah. being the, the with the girth that it's got and the power that it's got, particularly with the U.S. size, you uh, should be lobbying. Lobbying governments to have leases to be mandatory, registered on title, that it become public knowledge for everything you've got. There's, that's that's the that's the workaround. I think you've
2: offended a lot of okay. our uh, <laughs> landlord I, listeners. I, I, <laughs> I said that tongue in cheek. Okay. I would yeah. I, uh, a, I would agree with Adam on that, and that's this is Matt from CoStar agreeing with
1: Adam. Yeah. Um,
0: the you know what I, I I hear you, and and I I think that uh, our group did a really great job with coming up with what I would call as a solution is that, you know, when you meet with people and, and I, I really hope that listeners are are able to uh, get a hold of us and maybe uh, have a demo just to get an understanding of what the platform looks like today. Cause uh, as we discussed in the 30 year history, it didn't start off the way, the way it looks today, but uh, one of, one of the um, one of the sort of facets within it um, does have an ability for, for, for end users to, um, um, put their information into the system but it's not shared with their research group so they the, the end user still owns the data mm. um, they're just able to view it on our platform so if that's a if that's an NER then then and that's what they want
1: to put but in it, that's, it, that's, it, that's what it, they it want to maintain proprietary proprietary to, to, to the subscriber correct and just
2: the explanation behind why that matters is uh, if you look at uh, say a market like a market like calgary right now a lot of times you're seeing face rates on leases that uh, don't look that damaged but the giveaways from the landlord you don't you don't see so you don't see what the net effect of rents are you don't see how badly those assets are performing yeah. you know it's uh, in the markets where it's uh, a landlord's paradise you're not seeing a lot of a lot of freebies given to the tenants but in places like Calgary right now you would see a lot of it
1: yeah C- can you right. list who who are the most active users of your of your platform you know maybe segregated by you know industry participant. Um, I'd imagine it's leasing brokers, probably first and foremost. But you know, yeah. is there any surprises there? You know?
0: Yeah, I, I I can't speak to certain companies. Yeah, yeah don't um, name names. But, but. Um, you know, we we've got uh, statistics are you know sort of ninety four percent renewal rate um, across uh, across our markets that we're in uh, in North America, um, and which is made up of really all of the major commercial player. Um, um, groups that you would think of. So commercial real estate brokerages is is probably the largest group of of clientele we have. You know, US banks, lenders, um, appraisal groups, you know, right down to, uh, we've, we've got on board a couple of, uh, commercial roofers. Um, they want uh, market data on, on property spec. When was a building built? Who owns hmm. the building? Project the um, life
2: cycle and when they might. That's right. Services yeah. Yeah. And that. they
0: work it backwards. So they'll look at buildings that are built say 22 years ago and it's the life cycle of a of a roof is 25 years, or they can say, Oh, uh, you know, maybe a really large lease deal happened in an industrial building. It might be a good time to reach out and say, listen, if there's a ton of H uh, HVAC work that needs to be done on the roof, might be a good time for the, for the landlord and the tenant to kind of look at, uh, uh capital expenditure and redoing the roof at that time. So that's interesting. Yeah. It, it's, it's just, it kind of gives you a different, different ways of thinking when you get more information, Sort of actually more access, I guess, to more information yeah, yeah.
2: so if uh, if if brokers are the largest group, that actually leads back to the question of you know information missing that people want, uh, the actual ownership on properties I know so many are obfuscated by number of companies and so you don't actually know who owns it. I know the brokers must ask you constantly for ownership information, right. And
0: And they do. And I mean, you know, where we're we're able to uh, get that information, where people are are willing to share ownership, you know, we, we, we do a pretty good job in saying, you know, we're a research group and, you know, this is the reason why we're asking the questions. And, you know, so a lot of times we'll get participation with, yeah, here's my name and number. A lot of times it's we'll have them call me directly. Um, and a lot of times it's uh, go away. So, you know, we, we respect that and, 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 uh, and move along. I mean, we, we, we um, there's no real magic to it. I, I think it's the, the, uh, horsepower that we have behind, which is our, our large, uh, investment in the actual internal, um, research. Yeah. Group. How many so, researchers are there? Um, so for Canada, there's, uh, um, Sixty in-house, and then we've got um, roughly between fifteen and sixteen hundred. I'm not sure of the actual number um, ac- across the so U.S.
1: Sixteen hundred researchers in the U.S. and you sixty here, mm-hmm. and, and just for for people to piece that together, one of the benefits, you know, if there's information missing uh, on a particular asset that you're looking for, or comps in the general neighborhood of a, of, a, of a you know an asset you're working on, you can just reach out to CoStar and say, hey, can you try to find the answer to this question
0: yeah right? yeah yeah so you can think of us sort of as a as a as your back-end research group um, the reason being is we want to increase the the information that goes into yeah it's the a data. value to you to go and yeah ask those and questions. our interests align and I and I think that the, you know that's uh, that's beneficial to the end user themselves and and uh, to us as well too we want to we wa- we want to sort of get all the data in the market that's available um, so we'll, we'll prioritize that by, you know, if an end-user or client of ours needs something, then we'll, we'll try and go out and get it for them as best we can.
1: And you want to talk about mobile?
0: We can talk about mobile. It's 2017. We're allowed to talk about mobile. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I just want to forget about it before we move on. No, cause.
0: no, I, I thank you for bringing it up. I was uh, I probably would have forgotten about myself. Um, so um, a great team in the U.S., and, and me as a, as a Canadian, I sort of sit up here, and I'm not privy to... Um, you know, all of the product enhancements that are, uh, that have gone on and that are currently going on. But one of them, um, I know that, uh, our team, um, in DC has been striving to make this something that's mobile. So, you know, the, the, the value of having all this information in your pocket is huge. Um, again, there's uh, YouTube videos, um, that I'll try and dig up, but, uh, CoStar mobile. So is now available, um, on an iPad and your iPhone, and uh, I mean, it, it, it's it's uh, impactful. I mean, it's, um, you know, probably not where everybody sits down and, and you know, puts the blinders on and does the grunt work on their uh, research on a project that they're working with. That's still the desktop uh, version. But um, being able to walk through a market and understand, you know, if you're going on tour and, and say, for instance, your, your end user, um, uh, you know, a corporate tenant is asking you, oh, that's a really nice building that we just drove by. Why aren't we in there? you know, without saying, okay, I'll go back to the office, figure it out and get back to you. Uh, I can pull it up and co and say, well, you know, this, the, the four lease sign out front and it, it looks like a nice building, but it's maybe it, maybe it's out of your budget or maybe the size uh, doesn't meet your requirement. Uh, you know, there's another whole host of reasons why maybe that space doesn't work for them, but you know, you, you, you have the access to all that data sort of at your fingertips, which is,
2: uh, uh, you know, I, I view that as pretty powerful. Value, absolutely. Yeah. On a related note, the commercial real estate podcast website also mobile
1: optimized. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> so, is there anything else you want to talk about with CoStar before we jump ship? I mean, just just for everyone, you know, uh, Matt's got extensive, obviously, information or, or experience in the real estate industry. Um, Those years as a broker, and of course, I even mean, Coastar is sort of um, a research firm, and you research pretty much anything and everything within the Canadian market context. So, we're excited to kind of let's just keep the conversation going on to more. There other topics I shouldn't say more interesting certainly the CoStar group <laughs> you're and insulting what, everybody today <laughs> Aaron <laughs> I'm a roll today it must be the Thursday of a long weekend okay so so is there anything else you want to talk about on the on the CoStar anything that we, that no, we I, I, I think we've covered a lot
0: um, you know there's obviously uh, uh, products and more information on our website which is CoStar.com and uh, yeah I mean uh, there's a number of ways that you can reach out if you've got questions and like I said I think it's uh Um, in Canada it's still um, myth busting to some people that you know just don't know what CoStar is yet Um, but you know our our marketing group and our our, um, sort of reach in terms of clientele and and people that participate with us that aren't clients um, that grows every day
2: we'll put uh, we'll put contact details in the show notes as well
1: great that's Great. great thanks guys so Vancouver marketplace can we start there
0: we can start there. So
1: I mean, let's let give some context. So, so so for listening, we can follow along or hold on to the rope. Um, I mean, certainly in the Canadian marketplace, there's a lot of interesting things going on. Um, you know, Vancouver, you know, end of 2016 with the foreign um, buyer's tax and, you know, the Toronto housing market now has been skyrocketing. Um, and, it, you know, I think everyone is starting to appreciate that it is a very, very simple question with a very, very complicated answer. And the question being, is it supply or demand side? Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we will try to, to bring this into some of the, the, the other markets, but certainly the two that seem to be the most um, contentious are the Vancouver and Toronto markets. So, uh, Matt, you were just out there for the Vancouver Real Estate Forum, um, you know, what, what stood out of, of, from what you heard there?
0: Well, the mountains stood out the most. <laughs> uh, beautiful city. Um, yeah, so I, I was there um, and very much in a, a listening capacity to sort of understand, um, you know, the challenges uh, that that they face and, and you know, some of the unique ways that um, at least, you know, uh, uh, call it forward thinking and, and uh, definitely thought leaders there, um, a, a beautiful facility and it was a great, uh, great forum. But I think that one thing that stood out that's not dissimilar to Toronto is, is understanding um, the correlation sort of between live and work. Um, and we're seeing that already uh, both in Vancouver, Toronto, and a, a lot of cities is, is this um, sort of concept of mis- mixed use. So, you know, you've got a place where you live, but, um, you know, that, that's not great if, if there's nothing to do or, or you have to commute, you know, huge distances to work. So if you sort of have all three in the same neighbourhood, the, um, I guess the thought is that, uh, okay, well, you know, this is going to be a great place to live. We're going to have value here in terms of whether it be a, a condo or a multifamily or or a subdivision of, of detached homes. Um, but again, that access to, you know, needs and wants, um, people don't want to go far to, to, uh, to sort of, you know, whether it be food or <laughs> whether it be going out uh, for entertainment or whether it be going to work, people don't really want to, commute that's you know I think that's
2: uh, right across the board. If we're actually talking about the Vancouver real estate forum, I did have a couple of tweets from the forum that I was going to do in the news oh, section. Let's do it, do it, but yeah, do it, now. it just, yeah. just jumps right in. Uh, You're talking about inno- innovative ways of dealing with uh, with le- land uh, restrictions there. This is from the real estate news exchange. It's PC Urban, which is a developer. is exploring multi-story industrial buildings in the city core which we've not seen anywhere. That's uh it's a mind-boggling concept. You start thinking about uh lifts and the way you service it and uh the shipping obviously, but I guess in a in a geographically bound city like Vancouver, you kind of have to think that way.
0: Yeah, I would I I would agree. I mean, uh, density is density and it, that that goes across all asset classes. So that that I mean, that's a that's a creative way if you can get The correct tenant mix to make sure that your third floor tenant doesn't need uh, you know huge concrete floors or something like that. No, I mean there's there's people that 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 I'm sure can make that work, and that's. that's Well, we've had this conversation.
1: I think when we when um, one of our previous guests, Richard Joy uh, from ULI, was on, we had this conversation about if you travel around the world. I mean, particularly in Asia, and that's when I can speak to it. You know, Seoul. You know, anywhere in Tokyo, anywhere in Japan. I mean, all those places that are already sort of land uh, constrained. they have, you know, retail, simple retail stores that are 13 stories long and it's, um, you know, certainly the the rent probably decreases as you go up, but it's, you right. know, a uh, bookstore on the main floor and then a coffee shop on the second floor and then, you know, a, a, you know a, a, some sort of sports entertainment on the third floor and then a restaurant on the fourth floor and then something else on the fifth floor and it just goes up and that's the only right. way they can do it, right? Yeah. And that's not that there's some neighborhoods like that. There's literally, you know... Tens of maybe hundreds of kilometers of just retail that are stacked on top of each other,
2: whereas here, second-story retail is a dirty word. You yeah, see that or yeah, you,
1: I mean, you see. A, I mean, for us, certainly in the lending community, you see a you see a retail plaza with a second-floor office, and you go, okay, well, just pretend the office doesn't exist. Yeah, right.
0: That, that's and that that's a fair comment to make. Um, I, you know, anyone would would probably agree with you. But if you had, uh, say, for instance, thirty floors of multifamily above that um then all of a sudden it becomes a lot more attractive sure. so i think that's the growth of this mixed use um not even a mixed use neighborhood i'm talking to mixed use property there's one actually uh the address uh, escapes me but it's uh young and gerard um and i've seen some iterations of it and it's you know multiple multiple uh stories of uh, there's a home on,
1: and the home sense on the second floor is that, that the one that, that's about? right it's, yeah it's, and
0: it's and it's
1: Atrium, Arium? I'm sorry, I can't remember the name.
2: I think it's a Candorail building, I believe. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let me pull up my CoStar yeah. app. And think, <laughs> One and second. Te- yeah, i uh, This won't translate well to an audio-only format. That's right, <laughs> yeah. You guys can't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, if you have the density above it, um, then all of a sudden that second story becomes uh, more desirable to be on. So if someone can – and, and you know, maybe then you have mixed use. So, the, you know, if the coffee shop's on the first floor for walk-by traffic – but maybe you have an Indigo with a, with a, a Starbucks on the second, second story. Floor, yeah. yeah. Second story. Um, so, you know, it, it's all, you know, the, the again, the fundamentals and, and developers have, have really come a long way to, to not only um, um, have, you know, multiple use uh, in our property, but how, how those different uses interact with one another and how you can ultimately get foot, uh, foot traffic uh, right across the the commercial aspect of the property.
2: At, at the forum, well, I'll, I'll read the read the tweet, and then uh, this is something I want to talk about anyway. It says, this is from Lois Teguloa of PC Urban Properties, foreign buyers tax, good politics or good policy, not increasing affordability, but has a perception of the foreign buyer boogeyman. That must have been a hot topic at the forum.
0: Yeah, it, it did seem to be one. But there, I, I feel like there were a lot of people that just sort of had the thought, like, well, there was there was demand for property anyways so stifling the the, the foreign buyers um, made it um, i guess a little bit more easy easy access to local players but from from what I heard um, it, it didn't um, it didn't really affect uh, again it doesn't affect the supply and it doesn't affect Um, the demand because it was, it was already there in the first place that that's not me saying that, but that's sort of the general, um, general consensus of, of a few people that I talked to and it was interesting to me. I, I, I thought that, uh,
1: yeah, our, our rudimentary research aka just sort of you know calling some people that we know in the industry if you're a developer and you're selling condos that are you know 700 to a million dollars you probably felt very little change in the in the demand for for that type of asset if you are selling five million or eight million dollar you know four thousand square foot homes in West Vancouver that had a significant impact on that on that that section of the marketplace yeah that would make sense um, which would makes perfect sense I mean a, 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 you know when you're when you're selling homes at you know two thousand per square foot right That that's completely disconnected from the income and the ability to actually pay for that that expense right mm-hmm. so
2: yeah i've said that before but i always wonder how much impact you're talking about on uh final sale price of assets when you've got 18 offers versus 14 offers is it really going to drastically change the final sale price probably not <laughs> no
1: no probably not no saves a bit of reading you know, one of the things that I keep, I I find anyway in, in all the reading that I'm that I'm trying to do is the they seem to omit um, the impact of transportation and and sort of the movability of of, the, of people in those cities. And, and I you had kind of you know hit on it. I, I can't remember if it was in this podcast or before when we were kind of briefing to get to start. But you know, there's this concept of utility, and that's sort of an economics you know word. But really, what it just means is the uh, functionality and and life uh, the lifestyle that you want to live, right? And I, I think. 15 years ago when the city wasn't as congested as it was, you could live in Finch and Young or in North York and you could get downtown in 20 minutes at rush hour, so it didn't matter. Like I'm living that far away, but no matter what, no matter what time of day or night, I, I can get I can get places. So it was right. okay to live that far away from downtown. Now, I mean, if you live at Young and shepherd even to take the subway, I hear horror stories of you got to wait for eight eight subway trains to go because they're all packed. And yeah. you're certainly driving, it's just you wouldn't even think about it because it would take you an hour and twenty minutes to get up there, right? So
0: yeah. I've heard that same the same sort of uh, concept of, uh, of coming, you know, out of the uh, out of the downtown West area, Liberty Village. You know, your the streetcars are full, um, and there's a traffic jam to to get out of there again. Now, I, I haven't experienced that. I, I don't. I don't live out there, but that's just from you know a few residents that I know that
2: are out there. I've heard, I've heard that as well. Actually, yes, I think we've so, discussed it in one of the previous episodes. It's yeah, I, I couldn't imagine when you're paying that kind of premium to be near near downtown, you can almost walk it if you're being really ambitious to get from... That's 30 minutes. 30 minutes yeah. from yeah. our
1: offices here to, to Liberty Village. Right? Yeah. That's, and, that's, that's a healthy walk, right? Yeah, well,
0: absolutely. Um, And, you know, so I'm, I'm east of the city, and I would say the, the same thing. I mean, if you go out into uh, Durham and things of that nature, I mean, you're you're really a, uh, a salmon in the stream, you know, getting into the 401 and coming downtown. Now, I also know people that, you know, strategically live maybe a little bit closer to Toronto, but they work out in Durham, so they have that, you know, that... Cool Reverse what? The reverse commute. That That's the, the dream, them. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's certainly a, a density issue. But, I mean, I think that the, the other thing, too, is that the, the city of Toronto has grown so quickly um, in relation to the infrastructure. Um that, uh, you know, we just couldn't keep up and that's not a surprise to anybody, but, uh, you know, ultimately how moving forward, how do we fix that? So, you know, there's all these, you know, the questions of toll and, and continued investment in, in public transit. So I think we're headed in the right direction to fix a problem that was, you know, arguably 20, 30 years ago. Um, and then we also deal with, uh, just, just like a lot of other major cities that I look at, um, that, uh, Aaron and I, you and I discussed, uh, previously was the natural barrier of the lake so you've got the heartbeat of the city is in the financial core and you can only sort of uh, it's only three
1: directions you can go right
0: yeah. yeah exactly and and you you kind of have a comparison of 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 that city to like a Houston Texas Relatively the same size in turn in terms of uh, population, but they can build. They got uh, three
1: ring roads around Houston, or whatever right. it is. Yeah. yeah, and
0: I mean you can you can come in from from any direction, right? So it's a, a little bit different. But well, and,
1: and it, it, it's apparent to me that Vancouver is obviously the same thing, right? They've got their their downtown heartbeat on a on a little peninsula, that's you know ocean to the west and you know U.S. border to the south and the mountains to the north, right? That really really right. in Vancouver is really only one direction you can go, yeah, right? That's it's right. east, and so. Um, I, don't, I don't know. For somehow that gets lost in the dialogue, and maybe it just becomes too complex for simple, you know, one-liner uh, media headlines, right? It's right. supply demand. Well, I, I think it's, it's way more complex than that. It's it's neither or both, and, and it's in some combination. But I think transportation gets lost as one of the main factors for why we're right. having the the pressures we're having. Right. I know personally, I'm 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 a I'm a 10 to 15 minute drive outside of outside of uh, the downtown core uh, when it's when it's Sunday morning at 7 a.m. Otherwise, right. it's an hour. Yeah. Right. And I, so I can I can bike to work faster than I can in any other type of transportation. Right? Yeah. That, that seems silly to me. I mean, I, I think in any major urban area, any major um, metropolis like like Toronto is, you should be able to get around faster than you can on a bike. You know, by taking public transportation or driving. And that's just not true. I think in most places in Toronto nowadays. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, I mean, in all fairness, like actually, I live uh, in the same area that uh, Aaron does, just a little further north. And I've got a perfectly good car that sits in the driveway four days a week because I can walk down to the subway. And just for, for context sake, I'm, you know, I'm in a, a suburb of Toronto. I'm in Etobicoke. I can walk to the subway in uh, you know, a minute or two. But I can be door to door, standing in the front door of my house to sitting at my desk at work in 35 minutes in the subway during peak rush hour. And if I want to drive in the same time frame, it's going to be an hour. So I've got a car that just sits there. It's a very good. Yeah.
1: One well, to Mike. To, to I mean, and Adam's fortunate that he lives close to a subway. And if there were lots of subway stops in Toronto, it would be sufficient. But unfortunately, those to find a house that's reasonably priced that you can afford to pay for, it's right. really really challenging. I, I mean, uh, yeah. The I Venn think, diagram on that. Is yeah. Really, well, <laughs> I mean, the reality I think is that you and I are probably the exact same distance from downtown Toronto. You just happen to be 15 minutes closer to a subway stop. And therefore, it takes you 30 minutes and it takes me an hour. And it, you know, that, that seems, you know, I mean, I don't, it, it, anyway, my point is it gets lost in the conversation, right? Right.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's just so many factors that, um, you know, either complement or compound um, that, uh, yeah. So a lot of times that's something. The, that's, someone that's and unspoken. someone, someone
1: I was talking to about this was making a joke about, um, you know, the problem with bureaucracy and how uh, there needs to be studies done and then they need to discuss the studies. And, yeah. I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I believe it to be true only because it sounds like it should be true. Is that you know the city of Toronto gets stuck in this perpetual? Let's order a study, then let's talk about it for three years. Okay, that study's too old now to really be valid. So let's order another study, and then let's talk about it for three years. Okay, now that study's too old, and that's just been going on for you know, some sort of this perpetual. No decisions can ever get made because they can never make a decision right. fast enough before the study becomes stale, right? And you're,
2: and you're looking for funding from multiple levels of government, and they're they're changing leadership every you know, four <laughs> yeah. years and yeah. different mandates, and it's uh, you need right. the stars. To a line for anything to move forward right and
0: and and back to the the discussion as well too your your, uh, family being in development i mean they're um they're taxed as well too to have have these you know again multi-use properties that you know and 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 i think ultimately it's how do you work with one another um and if there's i'm not really sure what the answer is if i had it i i I would be sitting here talking to us no no i would be i would be i would be screaming it from the mountaintops um, because ultimately it benefits everybody, um, but it, you know, and and I heard this concept uh, out in Vancouver was sort of like clusters and. Um, you know, you kind of see that. You see, you know, um, intensification, young and young, right up the young line, right? So, young and Eglinton, uh, mm-hmm. further, further uh, development happening there. And again, that's now going to be a, much more of a transit hub than it is now. Sure. Um, with the, with the LRT going across Eglinton. Right, the east-west line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I think that if there's, if there's ways for, if there's ways for, um, um, that that process of of development and and landowners to to work with uh, our our transit uh entities uh Metrolinx and TTC um and then you know York Durham region things of that nature I mean it, it's got to be a holistic view and and I know that uh, Metrolinx is, has a, this mandate to really connect um Hamilton to Toronto mm-hmm. and I and I think that that's a great step in the right direction but I think there's got to be more of that that happens so really integrating even via rail, which connects ultimately you know municipalities together as well too i mean I, I was talking to um, uh, a friend of mine that that's out in Oakville and one of his options is legitimately taking the Via train, um, and I, mean, I, I would assume that that's just a little bit more expensive than a Go train. But if that's your option, I mean, you, you know, you can't afford an hour and you know an hour plus in the car, um, and the trains are, are full at rush hour. Uh, Go at the Go train to that I mean. to that so,
1: same on that same note, uh, a, a friend of mine lives at sort of Dundas and Bloor. And now he's not, which not, is right downtown for anybody. Really, not yeah. Well, no, uh, yeah. Uh, um, no, the, the Dundas and Bloor, uh, like Dundas West subway station. So it's not, okay. not quite mm. right downtown, but, oh, sorry, but, but yeah. you're still, you know, you're, you're really not from a in general terms you are pretty close to the core, but it's still for him. It's a 30 minute drive or a 30 minute subway, you know, transportation, or he jumps on the union Pearson express, which takes him seven minutes. Yeah. Right. So, so that thing was, it was the best thing for him because you can yeah. walk to that subway station. Now we can be door to door in 12 minutes, right? Yeah. Because that, that's, you know, and so people are looking for those little alternatives. And, you know, I mean, that reminds me or, or and say what you will about, um, uh, John Tory and the job that he's done but um his idea, the smart tracks—whether his idea or not—but his his sort of campaign about using the existing rail lines to produce more more subway, more stops, more more transportation stops does make sense, right? Now, whether you can actually pull it off and get all the ducks in a row and get all the different levels on board to fund it, I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. it makes sense to me that you use the infrastructure that's already there, right? Right.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. <laughs> it completely makes sense to me. Again, if it's doable.
1: If it's, if it's doable, yeah. yeah. If if he has the the willpower to make it happen or not. Yeah.
2: There's, there's actually one more tweet from the Vancouver real estate forum I want to talk about. I mean, it would be applicable, applicable in, in Toronto and Vancouver, but it's from James Speakman of Clark Wilson LP. And he was quoting John Stovo. He said, we're going to be shocked in 24 months when we see how much of what is under construction will be rental. And I would say that that's true. I mean, Aaron and I being, from First National, a large apartment lender, we see the amount of thought and energy going into apartment construction right now, but I don't know if your your average real estate practitioner is really grasping how many people are looking to get in the ground for apartment rental, and they're looking to do it today. You know, they have the land, the pro formas are making sense, they want to execute. So you are going to see a lot of units coming on stream the next couple of years. And now, of course, you're hearing noise, at least uh, you know here in, here in Toronto, to... Um, amend our rent control. The basic premise being that buildings built after 1991 in Toronto are exempt from rent control. The idea being that it would further the interest of developers to to build an apartment. It hasn't had a large spread impact until more recently when everybody has to build it. But of course, we're seeing affordability issues. So now Kathleen Wynne, the Premier of Ontario, is looking at pulling back on that and including rentals. So just so we're on the cusp of all this building—this is a potential, a potential monkey wrench thrown into the uh, thrown into the works here
1: i struggle with this topic only because I, I i don't know what's in the best interest of the real estate industry at large and then obviously of course the, the you know just the general the, the, the population and, and, and i think at the ultimate if, you know the economist in me thinks and and, and matt i i, I know I, I believe you agree with me that it, it market forces will prevail right at the end of the day um, whether there are rent controls or not um you know those rent controls just for transparency for those listening those are only for in-place tenants for buildings built 1991 and prior. So uh, now, now Captain, which is the bulk of the stock, which is the bulk though. of the stock, yeah. and and so there are more people entering that that in, that industry. But I, I'm not sure that they're looking at it and saying, "Hey, this is great. I can build this uh, apartment building and I can just raise rents on anybody that moves in whenever I want to keep them at market." Like I, I you know, I think they're going to set they're going to set their rent at market, and if they go and try to raise it too high, then those tenants are just going to leave and they're going to go somewhere else. And, and you know, there there is a balance between um, the price of ownership versus the price of renting, and if it gets too expensive to rent, then you're just going to go and buy something because it's going to be cheaper. I mean, people that there's a sort of a natural flow, incentivizing developers to build units increases supply, which theoretically
2: moderates rental prices.
1: I theoretically. Think- theoretically. Yeah, I hear you, but you have to make so many assumptions. And maybe talk about the talk about the, the, the motivations for, for condo developers or or others that are looking to get into the apartment uh, uh, industry. I, I, for the most part, anyway, um, they're not building and selling the unit; they're building the or constructing the building and then selling it. They're constructing for the purposes of holding, and what they can do is sort of amortize the revenue they're going to get uh, and the benefit of that cash flow over, say, a thirty or fifty year span or whatever the assumptions they're making. But to your point, I they, they, you know they probably do try to say. Well, What are rents going to be in 10 years? What are rents going to be in 20 years? And if there are rent controls, they probably think, well, shoot, like that means I can only raise rents 3% per year or whatever it ends up being. Versus if there's no rent control, maybe I can raise them 7% per year. But those are just absolute, you know, throwing darts at a wall type assumptions. Who knows where rents will go and what the market forces will be, you know, five years from now, let alone 10, 30, 50 years from now.
0: Right. Well, I I mean, I think that um, a lot of people sort of look at it from – From the builder's perspective, I think it's interesting to look at the actual unit uh, renter or, or perspective home buyer. So, someone that's in the market for a place to live. So, you know, there's, there's, uh, I think in Canada in general, we 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 spend a lot of time um, contemplating home ownership, and because that's you know uh, traditionally how you where you put your wealth because you know the the real estate market is doing well, so you're going to have appreciation of your your largest asset. You know, in the U.S., we saw the the sort of housing crash, um, and then we saw you know renting uh, taking mm-hmm. over. There's a lot of a lot of rental a units, ton, and, right? Yeah, yeah, which which is. Um, you know, and, and and that was sort of a a, a little bit of a off-topic uh, theme at the at the real estate forum in Vancouver was you know understanding you know rental versus owning and and the price difference and and there's a, there is a huge difference between uh, vacancy in terms of renting out a condo versus buying a condo. So this was the you know everything is bought paid for before they put a shovel in the ground, uh, then they then the the building goes up and it's like. vacant because that's, uh, that's where someone from a foreign country can put their money, Hmm. but that doesn't help people that are, are so the, 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 the unit sits vacant. and, And then there are still people that are struggling to find a place to live. That's affordable. So, they were contemplating, and I'm not sure if they've implemented this or are talking about imp- implementing it. But it's it's called a vacancy tax, so taxing mm-hmm. someone, uh, you know, above and beyond for a vacant unit that sits at, like, you know, why don't you put it on Airbnb or or, or, just, or, 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 it. or, or just, Yeah, just yeah, have a broker, uh, you know, find a mm-hmm. find a, a user for it. You know, that that's always been a question as well too. And and I and I think that with all the active cranes uh, here in the GTA and they there's still constant building, I think that everything is is um, is fairly Linked together, so you have condos um, that are taking up. So now they're they're high rise residential, which was actually land that was slated for uh, commercial use. So that was going to be employment land. I'm I'm not speaking about a specific property. I'm just sort of talking about you know the downtown growth mm-hmm. and, and a lot of it's been condo. You know we've got this concept now of people working right where they live, and there's a lot of entertainment. So it's a it's a place to be certainly for young people that are 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 maybe uh, you know don't yet, uh, haven't started growing a family, you know, ultimately then there becomes the urban sprawl. And then that is again, affected by, uh, you know, transit or a lack of transit Mm -hmm. or a lack of being able to get back down to work, downtown to Mm -hmm. work. So, um, you know, I, I think companies have to think about, you know, maybe, um, having, uh, satellite offices in separate locations where, you know, they're a little bit more decentralized. And, and I mean, I don't know if that's corporate culture right across Canada, but some people embrace it and they find that, they have be- maybe better um, employee retention.
1: Well, add to that list flexible work hours. If you're working at from ten to eight, ten a.m. to eight p.m., you're not you're not in the middle of rush hour commuting or or um, more more accommodating work from home um, you right. Know, structure, right? Yeah, you know, you know, I think a lot of people find that appealing, but it totally depends on what industry you're in, right? If you're yeah. uh, um, if you're client facing, it's really challenging to work from home all the time, right? right. So
0: yeah and I, and I think to to bring this back uh, back to um, the tweet that uh, Adam received was you know having the the ability for call it commercial developers to build these multifamily apartment buildings because there is a need for them. People, you know, we're we're talking about it all the time. and is, is a single person can't afford to buy a home, uh, or or you're you know you just get married and and uh, you and your partner can't afford a house on two incomes, you know. So then it becomes you know, well, can our parents help out, or you know, do we have mm-hmm. a relative that can help out? And then you know, you're talking like multiple people on title, well, or <laughs> you know, some you know, so it, it it's so needed. And you know, if if there's going to be rent control, it really stifles. The ability and the want, um, from a business perspective, for for these builders to build multifamily. So, my opinion is, let let's stay away from that to a certain extent. Uh, extent. And if you've got buildings and there's plenty of stock that's that's in this, um, you know, 1991 built or prior. Um, the other thing too is you can say, well, you know, there's a need for affordable housing. So you know well let's address the needs separately and 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 build accordingly like mm. let's build responsibly and and uh, you know so maybe that becomes a part of you know for however many units you build that are not rent control you have to contribute or build a certain amount of units that that, that do fall that under that the rent, rent control yeah. i don't know just a, honestly a, just a so, not a solution think, necessarily, but a, a thought to consider that that just crossed my mind. That's so. an
1: interesting point. I mean, maybe maybe we get so st- stuck in the construct of rent control means you can't increase rents more than X as prescribed by whatever the the the, the governing body says, right. right? Versus maybe it's maybe rent control means no, you you just can't raise it this much above and beyond what we deem market rents are for your neighborhood or something, right? I mean, right. if market rents are twenty five hundred, you can't charge thirty five hundred, but you can charge twenty five hundred plus. Two percent or something. I mean, there might be different ways to implement a different type of control. I mean, what we're and obviously what the what the the governments are trying to do is just prevent guys from just charging egregious rents. Oh, you're paying eleven hundred now; it's three thousand, and you got to be out on the streets because you can't afford to live there anymore.
2: There's been some articles recently where that exact case happened. But my first thought is that's got to be a very unique situation. If oh, yeah. My landlord said, "Hey, you need to pay double rent. I'm just going to leave. That's going to be right. the end of it." I mean, this, this is not just a, a situation where they can they can charge whatever they want. There has to be an agreeing party on the other end in order to pay that every month. So yeah. every time I see that, that an article like that, I always think that it, it must have been grossly under market or some sort of outstanding circumstance. Yeah, and there and it, a lot of times
0: it it uh, really comes down to there's uh, there's a need oh. and. There's not enough. Uh, there's not enough supply, right? So, until you have enough supply um, in the marketplace, you know that that won't level out um, no. in terms of the, the, the fair market rent.
1: We could talk for hours. We we have in the past. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We do regularly. Um, unfortunately we can't. Let's we got two other two more segments. First, Matt, why don't we start um you know, this is something we do with all of our with all of our guests, um, and it and it's for, for the uh, the listeners out there that are maybe just starting in, in the commercial real estate industry. Do you have two um two items uh, of uh do you have two recommendations to yourself? If you were if you could talk to yourself from fifteen years ago when you started the industry, what would they be?
0: Yes, I do. And um, pieces of advice. Yeah, I, I appreciate you guys asking because it really got the wheels turning in my mind in terms of what uh, I, I can tell you. There's um, one piece of advice I would say is that really ties into the old adage of "be beware of the man of one book" or "beware of the person with one book," and and how I relate that is, um, I, I think taking advice from all all types of different facets within an industry. You know, not just learning the tenant corporate side. But talking to a developer and understanding the value where they, you know, what's their mind around in terms of buying property, in terms of building it, um, looking at a landlord and understanding how how um, they need to understand taxes and OPEX just as much as they have to understand rent and, and really basically not turning down advice just because, uh, you know, someone that, you, you know, you might meet in the industry doesn't do exactly what you do. They have a different perspective and they are all, uh, they all relate to one another. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest things and, and, uh, I was lucky growing up in my career. I was able to talk to, um, developers and, and, you know, they said one of the best things you can understand is a lease, you know, so that's, uh, I got into leasing and, and did that for a number of years and that helped build sort of the foundation of, of, uh, I guess my education within real estate. The second piece of advice, you guys might laugh, but I bet you one of you will actually go back to your desk right now and change your settings on your outlook. And it is turning that little lower right-hand corner. Um, Every time you get an email, the the thing pops up and says you got an email email from some... I didn't even know you could turn it off. Um, and I've, I've already done that. This is good advice. <laughs> I, a friend of mine. Uh, yeah, I have not, but I will. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine that I work with uh, mentioned that, "Hey, you can turn that off." I went into my settings and turned it off, and I can tell you, I, I actually have been more productive. I'm sure, oh, because sure. it's just such a distraction. And not to say that those emails aren't important, but most, most are not important, right. To be honest, <laughs> yeah. Um, especially around March Madness time. But um, you know what? It's it's uh, it's something that I found that you know when you're dealing with a task or or, or dealing, you know, maybe research or whatever it is that you're doing, is just finish that task and, yeah. and then go back to your email box and say, what do I, you know, your, prioritize? It'll yourself. stay.
1: It'll be it'll still be there. The email will still be it, there. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I, and I
0: mean, uh, uh, again, we can laugh about it, but honestly, if I had known about that five years ago, um, I would have gotten a lot more. Stuff you wouldn't done be sitting here I, talking to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, that, that is great advice. I did it a while ago for the exact same reason. Generally speaking, with real estate, what you're working on, you're focused on it. And you get some email of minor interest and it breaks your focus. Then you get back into your Excel spreadsheet. Got to think about the formulas you are working on. And all of a sudden you've lost six and a half minutes because you... Wanted to read an email with somebody saying, hey, we're we meeting for lunch tomorrow. That's you know, right. It's, yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: Especially with, I mean, uh, there's so many more people wearing multiple hats and there's, you know, um, sales performance or there's customer service or research or uh, underwriting or, um, you know, multiple things we, we deal with every day. And, and uh, you know, you can really get distracted easily. And I found that, you know, just, just that one small little change um, really
1: affected my day. Noted. Um, and then and then last but not least of course just a couple of interesting pieces of uh, news in the in the marketplace that we're going to we're going to talk about. Um, mine mine relates to you know if, if for any of the listeners we've had that have you know kind of come through all of the podcasts we, we Adam and I did a year in review a number of podcasts ago and and, and it kept coming up as so we we're doing our research uh, City of Edmonton approves new condo tower, City of Edmonton approves new office tower, City of Edmonton approves new development and and you, it kind of seemed to be disconnected from, you know, true economic forces. I mean, I wasn't aware. Maybe I'm wrong, and I, it certainly could be uh, that that Edmonton is this booming marketplace with, you know, large population growth. And, and I, I don't know that to be true. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't. Well, believe- CoStar could probably tell you whether. It's yeah, well, or not. <laughs> but I don't believe that it's this booming booming town yet. It seems that a disproportionate amount of development is going on in that town, you know, in, in relation to to the economy at large. And so, of course, you know, a couple days ago, up pops another one. The city of Edmonton's approved a uh, 80-story condo tower uh, by selling public parkland to the developer. Uh, And 80 stories, okay, what does that mean? Well, that's that's 200 250 meters, sorry, 280 meters. Um, And for context, the tallest building in Edmonton today is 140 meters. So you're talking about a tower on the outskirts of downtown Edmonton built on public parkland that's going to be double the height of any other tower in Edmonton. So, just curious. I don't know what it means. I don't know why the city's doing that. It was approved nine to three by the by their twelve councillors. So it wasn't like it scratched through by the skin of its chin. Um, just very curious to see why. And it, you know, if I just guess, it's probably something like, "Well, wow, Calgary's really struggling. Let's try to become the the capital of Alberta like we used to be." I mean, Edmonton used to be more focused, more more like considered the center of Alberta uh, Calgary's overtaken it with the oil boom and maybe Edmonton's just you know, maybe it's an internal battle of Alberta. I don't know. I'm just I'm just guessing.
2: Well maybe it's a typical uh, developer approach where they ask for the moon, get it cut back to half and they're happy because that's what they originally wanted, but in this case it just got approved as is. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, so a whole bunch of developers are <laughs> like, what? <laughs> you approve that? But it, when you see the I guess the, the the rendering of what's going to do to the skyline is just it just obviously dominates it. It's so much larger, so much more prominent than anything it, else. It, it out does.
1: There. I mean, in comparison, it looks like the Burj Tower in, in Dubai, right? It's this huge, gigantic thing above and beyond anything else in the city. Um, anyway, we'll see what actually gets developed. I mean, of course, they've still got to go through a, a bunch of hoops to actually get shovels in the ground. But especially in a down market, too, to
2: take on super ambitious projects, it's interesting. You know, yep. interesting. Yeah, interesting. I've got, actually got a couple of news stories. Uh, the next one is my favorite. It's beloved Canadian podcaster welcomes first child into the world. <laughs> this this oh. would be Aaron Cameron. Recently became yeah. a father, so congratulations to him. Thank
1: you. Yeah, loosely related to real estate. Little but. Levon John Cameron.
2: Uh, Just one other quick item to note, uh, on the Greg Peacock episode, that was a few episodes ago with Greg Peacock of Colliers, he voiced his concern about the inclusion rate potentially being raised, which would really impact people's ability to move in and around uh, different uh, real estate ownership. uh, And the federal budget came out, and they did not touch it. So good news, the real estate party will continue for everybody. Hurrah. Yeah. And the, the article, actually, that I wanted to get into... It is Toronto office tower construction to begin on spec. And this is this is an ambitious project. This is right here in downtown Toronto 16 York Street. It's a quite a, a large tower, 879, thousand square feet. The developer is Cadillac Fairview, who luckily has the deep pockets to you know withstand any sort of hiccups in a, a spec build office tower. There is data to support it. And they're quoted here. CBRE's quoted as talking about the 4.2% vacancy rate and in, in the downtown core being the lowest in North America, and that I guess can incentivize developers to to uh, take on tasks like this. But in in virtually every other development like this downtown, you see an anchor tenant take up you know 30, 40, 50% of the space, and then they start putting shovels in the ground. In this case, they're going in with with none. It's a it's a bold move. I'm assuming the markets don't change. I'm sure they will look really smart when they can get to market a lot faster than you know, the usual five to seven year time horizon for these. But if the market moves, that is going to be a heavy anchor around their neck.
1: Do you have any comments on that? I mean, my thought is, is they must have some ace in their up their sleeve. Like, Hey, you know, if we can't find anybody, we're just gonna move our own head offices into this building or something like that, where it's, they've got a they've got a fallback plan rather than you know, let's just hope cross our fingers and hope that the market's still there. I mean, I can't imagine they're thinking to themselves, "Oh, in three years from now, the rental rates will be so much higher in the office space, so we're gonna look like geniuses in three years." Anyway, I mean, that's my thought.
0: There's a number of factors, and and you know, there's uh, probably a lot that 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 we don't know. Uh, going on behind the scenes um, they, they you know they have a, a wealth of tenants within mm-hmm. uh, within their portfolio downtown so um, there could be office shifting there could be um, you know uh, again a whole host of things um, the other thing too is i mean you know you, ha- you have conversations with with uh, brokerages that represent um, large entities downtown and you know once you get an understanding for movement you feel very confident that there's going to be a demand for it and I understand certainly uh, you know, having a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, but you know, if you're uh, in in some sort of flock where there's a bunch of birds, then you know maybe it, the risk doesn't seem that large to them. And I, again, I'm just speculating, but you know, uh, I, I think maybe strength in the decision that they made to, to go forward with this is the vacancy rate, and uh, ultimately the health of of Toronto's market. Yeah. Um. In comparison to others, like you maybe you wouldn't do this in another market, but I feel Toronto is is very diverse by industry type. Absolutely. Um. You know, so there's there's you know there's a I guess a fair amount of security in that moving
1: forward. I but think if it was, you know, maybe a small developer, I'd be a bit more surprised. But to your point, I mean, Cadillac, Cadillac Fairview is so well connected. They, they've they had conversations with a whole bunch of potential tenants and kind of get a sense that there's enough demand here, a future demand here at some point in time that we're safe going yeah. it on spec. Right? Yeah,
0: and I mean, the, they certainly understand uh, the work that Metrolinx and Osmington is, is doing at Union Station. Mm-hmm. And to have another A-class uh you know, office asset that they can add to the portfolio by by taking a little bit of risk, seemingly, if we're outside of Cadillac Fairway, it seems like risk. But, you know, I, I think ultimately there are, are a number of indicators that are there that say that, that uh, you know, this is a, a
1: yeah. straight... Assumably uh, connected to the path as well, which is always sort of creates, right. creates significant mm-hmm. demand. Yeah. I mean, what's the risk? The risk is probably that there is some sort of change in the marketplace and rather than 30 bucks a square foot, they're going to get 20 bucks a square foot i, I mean who knows right so yeah i don't
0: yeah and i, I know you're, whatever the numbers are. yeah yeah, I just We're making of, the numbers up but right yeah i don't, I don't think it would be <laughs> i don't think it would be that drastic i think they'd want the 20 and the 30 dollars uh in, in in combined but um <laughs> yeah i mean I, I just feel with all the development that's going on i mean it's uh it's sort of in line with other projects and and ultimately there's going to be a uh you know the, the density of the downtown core is going to continue um, yeah, you know, and, and there's always going to be tenants that want to be downtown, and, and they f- they follow again the transit hubs. They follow the places to eat and work, right? Well, it was so, that
1: self perpetuation. You build more condo towers, you got more people that want to work downtowns. So you got to build more office towers to accommodate those people that are working downtowns. So you got to build more condo towers to so accommodate people that work right. downtown. Yeah, right? and just that, get, and that's just keep going, right?
0: That's right, and that that sort of kind of that kind of breeds. So the alternative to that is, it, I find interesting, is more of more clustering, but you got to have transit and the ability to get from one cluster to another easily right so so that's the you know the continued will bring it for
1: right? a full circle right it's back to yes. transportation yeah, exactly. here, right? exactly. exactly. let's end on a high note everyone
2: <laughs> <laughs> transportation in toronto is not a high note <laughs>
1: fair enough <laughs> Thanks for coming, Matt. That was a great conversation. Much, much appreciated. Uh, I mean, for everyone uh, that's listening, you know, go to our website, uh, crepodcast.ca or .com. Uh, do we, we've got information about the CoStar Group. You can also go to costargroup.com if you want more information. Reach out to uh, Matt Popow. He'll have his uh, his information on our, on our website. Thank yeah. you very
0: much, guys. Yeah. I appreciate uh, you guys having me in, and, and thank you for... Uh, to First National for uh, for putting this on. And, and uh, you guys are a valued client and appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks.
1: Thanks
2: hey, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.